0: We are entering into a time in our family's life that was uh, very challenging, and uh, your pastor was a help to be an encouragement along the way, and i um, uh, grown to, hopefully it doesn't freak you out or anything like that, but grown to love him as a friend and appreciate his encouragement, and uh, so I, I'm always glad to share fellowship and be able to be here with you tonight. Uh, I am not the largest voice in the room. I may be the largest person in the room, but not the largest voice. So I apologize. I'll give you what I got. And uh, I would like to kind of give you a backdrop on what uh, we're going to look at here tonight. Um, I've for years done a a devotional kind of study on, on trying to teach whether teens for about 10 years, or adults for the last 10 years, to, uh, to you know, just what kind of questions should you ask when you're studying the scriptures? And um, I thoroughly enjoyed that. In so doing, I've gone through the Book of 2 Corinthians on on uh, two occasions with teens, and on two occasions with adults. And uh, one uh, New Year's, tried to preach through the whole book in one setting, which I know Jacob always teases me about teaching or preaching one letter at a time rather than just one verse at a time, one letter at a time, because I, I crawl sometimes through through books. But 2 uh, Corinthians is a, an important book and a, and a helpful book and a necessary book. Uh, we live in a society where, whether it's nationally, whether it's Congress or the President or the judicial system, laws seem irrelevant, authority is unimportant. Uh, We live as far as uh, the family, as far as uh, relationships where authority is, again, ignored. Uh, Rebellion is held as something that is vital and and crucial. And uh, yet there's a, a key aspect when you consider the the triune nature of God, the fact that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and how they relate to one another—that the Father sends the Son, and the Son always submits to the Father. There is a there is an inherent accountability and obedience and submission that's found in the Scriptures that God wants to be then reflected in life, and uh, and The church is hindered when society drifts away from the reality of the relationship of God's leaders and people. So, the message tonight was not requested by your pastor. Um, Whenever I go to preach somewhere, I try, unless I'm specifically asked to uh, do something I hadn't done before, I I just try and share what is... uh, what I've been going through. This year I've gone through 2 Corinthians, and the notes in front of you are not going to be line upon line, but they are kind of a a systematic approach in this particular theme. And I I want to establish that that's not just uh, being pulled out the end of my thumb here. Uh, I'll quote from the ESV Study Bible as to what is the purpose of the book of 2 Corinthians. And it says... Paul's letter is an extended defense of the legitimacy of his apostolic ministry and its implications. It is intended to accomplish three overlapping purposes. To strengthen the faithful majority and purity of the church. To complete the collection as the expression of their repentance. And to offer the rebellious minority one more chance to repent before Paul returns to judge those Still rejecting him and hence his message. To reject Paul was to reject the gospel. Now, I'm a pastor. I don't have apostolic authority like Paul does. I'm not trying to make that connection in, in, in our minds and anyone's um, mind here tonight. I do want to just encourage you to think, in defending apostolic ministry, men who faithfully teach and preach and proclaim the apostolic truths fall in the, the line of the authority that God wants for His church. I hope that makes sense. Is that, there is a I don't have independent authority like Paul would, who speaks by means of inspiration. I shouldn't say speaks. He writes by means of inspiration. And he can say, I'm an apostle. Do this. If you don't, I will come and correct. I, I don't have that. However, where I pastor, I do have a responsibility to preach what Paul did say and Peter and the other apostles. And when people don't line up with that, then I have a responsibility to both protect my church and to help them by calling them to be underneath that authority. And so tonight, I'd just like to consider, uh, the, the outline isn't in an outline form, but I'd like to consider you know, three different things in this regard. Examining your relationship to your God-chosen leaders. The first thing that we want to see is the confirmation. Who, who is a God-chosen leader? And, and I think this is an important question when you work through Second Corinthians, Because there is a group of people who have come into the church in Corinth who are wanting authority and are trying to throw off. So one of the things Paul is having to do is he's having to defend his call from God. And the book helps us to see what it looks like when God calls somebody and puts them in a leadership position in his church and uh, we'll just walk through. I won't hit all of these references because I know we're supposed to be done by nine. So you don't... No, I'm just... <laughs> you can't hear me. All right. That was a little test case. So all right. So we, we'll just look at some of them. Hopefully, uh, you'll be able to make the connections if we don't look at a particular uh, text here tonight. But uh, the first thing, godly leaders are committed wholeheartedly to God in their plans, affections, dreams, hopes, and and other things we could put in that category. Notice in uh, chapter 1 and verse 12, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness, or maybe we'll we'll look at later, frankness, simplicity, and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world. We have lived in Openness and in sincerity, but we've also lived in the grace of God and lived our lives for you in that regard. In chapter 5, in verse 9, he says, Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home, not at you know my address or your address, whether I am present here on the earth, or whether I am absent, whether I've died, We have it as our ambition to be pleasing to Him. What marks out a God-called leader is somebody whose goal is to be pleasing to God. They're committed wholeheartedly to that endeavor. As a result, godly leaders then deal openly and honestly is the blank, honestly and frankly, with their fellow believers. We read verse 12, and I I mentioned chapter 1 and verse 12, excuse me. Uh, We are testimony of our conscience that in holiness, I'm not against holiness, I think the ESV has a better translation here, frankness or simplicity. In simplicity or frankness, we have, and the next phrase says, and in godly sincerity. Chapter 2 and verse 17 We are not like many, these are his opponents, peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Uh, One of the things we do is we we just deal openly as a congregation. Sometimes people don't want to know about problems. Sometimes they, they just, you know... Somebody comes for a while and they become a member and they're committed and all of a sudden they leave our church. As soon as they leave our church and I've had the opportunity to meet with them, I address it publicly, openly. Why? Because I'm trying to trash them? No, I invite them to come, tell them when I'm going to do it. But open, honest, frank discussion is a sign of godly leadership. Meeting in covert places to try and rally people to yourself. And, and uh, you know, one of my former pastors used to say parking lot meetings or maybe we, we would say today uh, Twitter meetings or Facebook meet. Open, honest frankness is a sign of godly leadership. And Paul said, I've, I've not played games with you. Part of their issue is Paul didn't come to them. And they, they are like, well... Stirred up by various people. Well, Paul, you're not a, an honest man because you told us you were going to come back and you didn't come back. And Paul, I dealt with you honestly. And, and we'll, if you read through, you can see part of Paul's reason for not coming. Third point here, godly leaders live the truths they, they teach instead of twisting the truths to their lives. They live these things. Paul says in chapter 4 and verse 2, we have renounced the things hidden. And an interesting phrase, Those things of uh, hidden intentions and motivations. Why? Because they're shameful. Not walking after craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by manifestation of the truth. By setting it forth in full disclosure in our lives, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience. Now... Was Paul perfect? No, he would say he was the chief of sinners, and I understand the context there in Timothy of what he's saying. Um, Paul's not perfect, but what Paul preached, he lived. He he didn't play uh, games about uh, his life and his lifestyle. He, he lived the things that he taught. Uh, a fifth thing that confirms the, the leadership of, of a God-chosen leader is Godly leaders evaluate the worth of people based on the cross, or, or based, uh, not based. Um, that's a terrible phrase. Evaluate the worth of people based on the cross, or based not, yeah, or not based on worldly standards is how it should read. Sorry for that. Chapter five, and this is uh, one of my favorite sections in this in letter. Um, and, and he says in uh, chapter five in verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. We don't judge people based on, are they a big wig at Ford or at General Motors or at Toyota or Volkswagen or wherever? Are they, they a blue collar versus white collar? Are they somebody really important? Or are they just a guy that can barely get himself here, you know, dressed? We don't look at people according to the standards of worldly success. And this is Again, a key theme throughout the book of 2 Corinthians. The the Corinthians had bought into the false teacher's evaluation of worldliness in thought and worldly philosophy. And Paul didn't meet the standards. Paul wasn't beautiful to look at. Paul wasn't impressive in his speech. Paul just simply taught and spoke on behalf of God. And Paul is saying here, we don't look at people based on their income, their intellect based on where they live and how important they are. and how impre- We look at people based on the standard of the, the reality of what the cross has done. And that's where he goes on to say, even though we've looked, we used to look at Christ this way, we thought Christ was foolish. Because he died. He wasn't successful from the human perspective. Godly leaders also are equipped and used by God in the proclamation of the Word. Paul, in chapter 6, in one, this is one of the sections in which he is kind of giving his defense of his ministry and it seems to always focus around suffering, which we'll look at in a second. But in this section, chapter 6 and verse 7, is he says that he, he ministered in what way? In the Word of truth, in the power of God. By the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the and for the left. God used Paul to bring the truth so that God's power would be on display. Now I know is it all right to interact on a Wednesday night? Can we talk? Yeah. Okay, all right. Well what do you think that means that God's power was on display in Corinth? Okay. Was it a huge citywide revival? Well, we get a little glimpse into that in chapter four and verse four, where they're attacking Paul because he doesn't have very many converts. So don't think the power of God must mean, oh, there's you know the church is always overflowing and and there's too many uh, people for the space and we're having to buy property and add on or. The power of God for Paul was the fact that the truth of God was going out and that it was, as a brother said, it was transforming people's lives. Now, again, I don't want to oversell that. <laughs> you look at Corinth, read 1 and 2 Corinthians together, and, and ask yourself would I really want to join that church? <laughs> yes. But Paul is saying, by God's power, whether it's slow or whether it's great, small, whatever, by God's power I came to you. When you look to to a qualified leader, it's a person who comes to you and places this book as the primary thing in the midst of the ministry of the Word of God and teaches it and proclaims it. And this book begins to shape the way we think the way we respond, the way we then live our lives, that's the power of God on display through Paul. Godly leaders are equipped and used by God in the proclamation of the Word. They're also sensitive and yielding. Next point. I should have used numbers. I don't remember what number we're on. Godly leaders are sensitive and yielding as they trust God's direction of personal choices. In chapter 8, Paul's dealing with this offering and he wants them to, to wrap up their giving and he says here in verse eight, Now listen, I am not speaking this as a command, but as through as proving through the earnestness of others and the sincerity of your love also. Paul could have, you know, puffed his chest out and said, I'm the apostle. I'm telling you, everybody must give. But Paul Paul understood that this in, in particular, this was a uh, a, a love offering for the believers back in uh, Palestine who were suffering by means of a, a, a famine. And, and it was a free will offering to show the grace of God in the Gentile world for the Jewish believers back there in suffering and to try and tie the body of Christ in, a, in the, uh, the larger sense together and uh, to support, therefore, the ministry that Paul was endeavoring and, and it had a lot of things going for it. And Paul could have really pressured people and he says i am not commanding you but i am appealing to you he is sensitive he is yielding not in doctrine i was never sensitive in yielding in doctrine but in matters of personal choice where people have to stand in relationship to god and give an account and i think godly leaders are that way Next, godly leaders have a testimony of being above reproach, both within the church and within the lost community. We're in chapter 8, verses 19 through 20. Paul's, Paul's just being straightforward. He says, look, I, I want... Um, verse 18, we sent along with him the brother whose fame in, these, in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord Himself and to show our readiness, taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Paul's saying, Look, we're, we're safeguarding, Paul's collecting a very large offering. This could go well to further his TV ministry or his cruise or uh, his trips to the Mount uh, you know, where he, he uh, could have some vacation time. Paul is none of that. We have a brother who is going to be along, along with me. And furthermore, we encourage some of you Corinthians to come along. Why? Because we want to deal openly and uprightly, not only in the sight of the Lord, but in your sight, and in the sight of the lost community around. Paul had a testimony of being above reproach. He is driven by the Lord's evaluation rather than by men. You know, one of the hardest things uh, that that pastors face is most people, and and this is the Wednesday night crowd. I I hope I'm not uh, um, saying this for you, but maybe you can get a, a, uh, a blessing for it on the opposite side and be a blessing to your pastor. Most people don't come to my office and say, Pastor, can I talk to you? You know, just even uttering those words, put the hair, hairs up on the back of my neck. Okay, what's wrong? I mean, that's kind of the life. Most people don't come to you saying, hey, I just wanted you to know everything's going great. And That's a challenge. And usually when people come to you, they're coming to you either for counsel or because you're the problem. And the evaluation of it, I mean, it is personal, not that people are always meaning it to be personal. It's personal when people leave the church. It's personal when things don't grow like you want it to grow. It's, and if you get caught up in trying to please people, all of a sudden you're, you're jumping through hoops. And Paul's not that way. Paul says in chapter 10, verse 12, For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. These are the false teachers who are trying to, you know, look, I can, I can preach much better than Paul and, and we can do this and we, we have many more followers and blah, blah, blah. And, and Paul's saying, that's foolish. He goes on uh, in verse number 18 to conclude the chapter. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved. But he whom the Lord commends. Those called by God have a an understanding and a a drive. But I know this isn't going to be popular. I mean I, I had to discipline my own son out of our church. You think that's a popular thing? No. But it, it was right stand before the Lord. You have to be driven to do what pleases the Lord. Finally, godly leaders are marked out finally for the first point just to be clear. Uh, finally, godly leaders are marked out by God through suffering and weakness. Now there's a lot here. Um, I'm thankful. One of the most recent conversations Jacob and I had. I hope we're not uh, getting in trouble here that we've talked. But... Uh, It wasn't about you guys. It was just about, you know, uh, as pastors, the need to stay in a place and be faithful. So I know his commitment is here when I say this. All right. But if you are to ever have to to go through a pastoral search, what do people fill up their resume with? Not what Paul says is his primary identification. The stamp of approval from God. We're talking about, well, my education was, I had a 4.6 on a four-point scale. I have 17 degrees. I have built churches from 10 to 2,000. I've got this, and I've got that, and I've done this. and, and It's just a, a worldly... And it's necessary. You have to try and get to know people somehow. I think there's better ways, but that's not tonight's message. Um, What marked out Paul? We'll just look at a few for sake of time, but just beginning the chapter, or the book, chapter 1, verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, the sufferings of Christ, same chapter, verse 8 we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia. We were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we were despaired even of life. Indeed, we had a sense of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, He who delivered us from so great a peril of death. I don't think Paul is exaggerating. Paul is suffering near to the point of death. Um, In uh, chapter 2 and verse 4, He goes on to say, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears. Chapter 4 and verse 7 down through verse 11. A familiar section. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. And and this familiar section, again, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. We commend ourselves as servants of God in endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings. I mean... Who would sign this guy, this guy to be their pastor? Here is the, the primary mark that Paul will continue all the way to the end of the book. Those familiar words where I prayed to the Lord, deliverance from this, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And Therefore, I will boast more gladly in my weakness so that the power of God might be on display. What marks out a Godly leader is suffering and weakness and hardship and challenge, not glory and fame and reputation and etc. Well, what should the ministry look like of a God-chosen leader? well we've we've looked at the first point uh, in regards to their motivation and their desire, but the motive of a godly leader is the glory of God. You'll be enriched in everything. For all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. His ministry was, even in this offering, the goal was to bring glory to God, not to make Paul some great uniter of the church, although that was a motivation for it. His ultimate motive was to produce thanksgiving to God. His aim, the aim of a godly leader, is is the good of those to, to whom he ministers, even if this requires sacrificial service. I feel like Paul is almost like a parent here with the Corinthians. You know, something happens when you turn from 12 to 13 that is just a mystery in most cases, it seems. And I know it's a transition into adulthood, but it it becomes almost as if, do do you think I really want you to live here the rest of your life and eat off of me and have me pay your bills. No, no, I'm, I'm for you. I want you to succeed. I want you to get a job and have a family and to love the Lord. And, and I, I'm not against you. I'm for you. Well, sometimes the same thing is, happens in, in pastor-church relationships. The people feel like pastors are somehow, I'm talking God-chosen leaders are against their people. Paul repeatedly, and again, for sake of time, we're not going to hit all of them here tonight, but we'll go back to chapter 1 and verse 6. Even in his afflictions, he says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. (laughs) I even realize my own suffering is for your good. The aim of Paul was to help the Corinthians. He wasn't their enemy. And in fact, part of the reason he didn't make another visit as he had planned, as chapter 2 says, is because I wanted to spare you. I was afraid for your spiritual perseverance if I came because of what I would have to do. So I delayed my plans for your good. And now you're treating me like I was some you know, unscrupulous, wishy-washy kind of guy. I was willing to sacrifice and sacrificially serve you. Well, Again, there's many more references we could look at here. The the third point here, the labor of a godly leader is to build you up in the Lord. Paul's point in chapter 10 and verse 8, For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you. I will not be put to shame. He makes reference to that again chapter 13. The goal of a godly leader is to build the people that God has entrusted to him stronger in the truth and in the Christian walk that God has tasked for them. What does that look like? Well, Paul narrows the focus, the fourth point there, the focus of a godly leader is to point people then to Christ. Especially through their preaching. For we do not preach ourselves, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 5, but Christ Jesus as Lord. This is a contrast. Some people... And I'm not talking about... I use personal illustrations. Um, I have a self-deprecating sense of humor and I have to watch that because that can even be self-serving. It, But I mean, I, I think it's hilarious the... Uh, you know, we have bats in our church. I don't know. We don't advertise that. It's not on the website. But I hate bats. Bat comes flying down the hall. I'm like screaming, running out the door. Leave my wife and kids behind. I mean, I'll tell those kinds of things. I think it's, it, I mean, I'd like to be able to say I could handle it better, but I just think it's funny. Pastors share their lives with you. I'm not talking about that, but what Paul is saying is we're trying to point you to Christ. We focus on the truth of Christ to show you Christ and to help you understand that your life is to be in affection for Christ. In chapter 12, and uh, verse 15, he says, I will most gladly spend and expend for your souls if if I love you more and, and am I to be loved less. Paul is saying, I'm willing to expend so that your affection may be on Christ. And in chapter 11 verses 2 and 3 For I am jealous with you for a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. And he says but I'm afraid that you will not have a purity of devotion to Christ. So and I know there's some overlap here and I guess I I tried to get some of the repetition throughout the book in the overlap. Um, Maybe I I could have done a better job here. But the the next point here is the task then of a godly leader is to speak on behalf of God. We are ambassadors for Christ, chapter 5 says. And and Paul says, therefore, as God were making an appeal through us, we are speaking for God to you. The task is to speak on behalf of God with boldness, even when what is said is unpopular and it may appear self-serving. Um, there are times where it, 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the, the laborer is worthy of his hire. Do you think any pastor really likes to talk about, you know, you should pay me well? That kind of sounds self-serving. Yeah. That's the truth. That's what Paul is saying. A leader speaks on behalf of God, and and we're not all apostles. I think they've all passed off, just to be clear. (laughs) But those that are, are carrying on the leadership that God has established for this dispensation in the church, they speak boldly. Not because it's always comfortable. I mean, I've preached through four of the five books in the uh, Pentateuch. There's a lot of really uncomfortable things. When you get into Leviticus and Numbers and just getting ready to start into Deuteronomy, it's not quite always fun. But you just speak boldly. I mean, in our society... um, who knows who's listening to the sermons that are out there and, and you know, I'm getting ready to go to Deuteronomy and talk about homosexuality and bestiality and all kinds of alities that are gross and sinful and, and soon it seems as if that will be hate speech. Do you just choose not to preach through Deuteronomy? No, you have to boldly speak. Uh, the task of a godly leader is to speak on behalf of God. The weapons of a godly leader... In their effort to protect the sheep, are spiritual, not physical. In chapter ten, Paul is saying, you know, we're here to pull down these fortresses, these high places of protection of sin. He says, for we, for, for though we walk in the flesh, though we're human beings, we do not war according to the flesh. We don't use sinful ways of of dealing with sin. For our weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but of our divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. The the greatest weapon that a godly leader has is to, to give the truth of God to the people of God. The responsibilities of a godly leader then are to call, next blank, the responsibilities of a godly leader are to call you to obey the gospel in Christian living. Verse 13, Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. Obey the gospel that you professed. That's one of the responsibilities. And when you don't, then the the godly leader is called to rebuke you of your worldliness. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached... Or you receive a different spirit which you have not received. Or a different gospel which you have accepted. You bear this beautifully. This is why I am a sarcastic person. Trying to be like Paul. Trying to be like God. Uh, say that sarcastically somewhat. Paul's using sarcasm here. He says, look, somebody comes to give you something that's not true. And you just take it all in. You just say, like, this is all wonderful. Paul's rebuking them and correcting them for their their uh, their sin. And uh, he punishes those that are disobedient. And you can see that throughout the book. The stubbornness of a godly leader should be seen in his refusing to change the philosophy of ministry to accommodate the congregation's desires. Uh, This is a tough point, I'm sure. People want ministry the way they want it. (laughs) Amazingly to our American sensibilities, they were offended that Paul wouldn't take their money Twice, two books, he has to constantly deal with the fact, you, you won't let us pay you. And Paul just keeps saying, no, I won't. No, I won't. No, I won't. No, I won't. He's stubborn. Why? Because he didn't want to conflate in people's mind that the gospel requires us to buy. And, and, and we don't do this uh, as pastors today, because I don't think that's the ministry, but we do this as missionaries, Right? We send out missionaries so that they don't have to to take money from the people that are on the field and they they have offerings in their services and they build buildings, etc. But they're not supported by the monies on the field so that the people that they go to don't think, I buy the gospel. Paul's saying, I'm not going to change that. The challenge for a godly leader is the fact that his whole life is intertwined with the spiritual growth of those to whom he ministers. Chapter 12 and verse 21, I guess it's the closest. I am afraid that when I come, my God may humiliate me before you. Why would Paul be humiliated? You'd be humiliated and grieved because of their sinful behavior. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of their impurity. Do you see what Paul's saying? His life is so intertwined with their lives that this would be a humiliation and a a grievous situation for him because of their sin. God, the leaders are so intertwined with your life that, that it is hard to leave the work at the work. Their lives are intertwined. And that burden of a godly leader, the next blank, the burden of a godly leader causes them to stay awake, worrying about your spiritual health. Go to chapter 7 and, and verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Paul is saying, I was so worried about you spiritually that I was afflicted almost to the point of depression. That's how intertwined his life was and his burden was. And and the integrity of a godly leader is seen in how they handle the church's finances. We've looked at that in the offering. You can see another reference to that in chapter 12. I want to take my last. I don't know if it's actually my last or if it's his last. I want to take the next minute and a half or two minutes here and try and buzz through. What should your response then be to uh, to the leaders that God gives you? Assuming they're confirmed by God and that they're ministering godly ministry. Well, here are several things. First of all, don't evaluate your leaders by worldly standards. I had somebody sit across the desk from me and say, well, I'm just, I'm, I'm from the business world and, and uh, I'm just not your, you're not a business CEO. They were trying to offend me. It's like, well, good. <laughs> I, I didn't apply to be a business CEO. Notice what Paul says. By glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold, we are we live, as punished, yet not to death. He's contrasting the worldly way of looking at Paul. He's not glorious. He's dishonored. And yet, God glorified him. God, you know, put his stamp of approval on him. Don't evaluate by, by false spiritual standards. Secondly, do recognize that your leaders will most likely be lied about, slandered, and falsely accused. This is great in a, in a Facebook world. Anybody can say anything Period. And every opinion is equal. <laughs> People are going to lie about godly leaders. They're going to falsely accuse them. Paul had that regularly in, in his, uh, his experience, chapter 7, verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Most commentaries think that you know, he's, he's having to answer and defend himself. That, well, Paul is just trying to, to uh, corrupt you. Paul is just trying to you know, get something from you. He's trying to take advantage of you, which is so ironic in that he wouldn't take their money. <laughs> but people lie about godly leaders. Don't let that happen at Ambassador Baptist Church. By your understanding, squelch that. Call people to live. If somebody has something wrong with uh, whether a leader or other deacons or whatever, Come and say, "Hey, do the biblical thing. Go talk to the person, because that's what God told you to do, and that's spiritual." Don't don't have them invite them into your life to to uh, chew the situation over. Third, do allow the leaders to explain their motives rather than assigning motives to their action. The Corinthians assigned a bad motive. Uh, our, at our church, we had to do some constitutional changes, but before we could do that we had several men who weren't willing to serve as deacons. They were qualified in my estimation, but they just felt they were too old, let the young kids do it, blah, blah, blah. Well, some of the young kids from things I knew weren't qualified to serve as deacons. And so we weren't yet, we had, we've since adjusted the Constitution, but some of our Constitution said you have to have a year off, and, and I wasn't just going to have unqualified people in the office. So said, you know, we're going to make a motion, Knowing our Constitution says this, that we bypass the Constitution for the moment and allow these men to, to run again. And, and somebody said to me, well, I know that you are good friends and that you spend a lot of time over at such-and-such's house. And, you know, I, I had been to such-and-such's house one time in seven years of ministry. But I was, somebody assigned a motive to me. Paul had that, that happen to him in his travel plans. Don't allow, I mean, do allow your leaders to explain their motives. Sometimes there are situations that are, that are they're, they're doing what they're doing for very good reasons, and give them opportunity to explain that. Fourth, do place yourself under the authority of your leaders, especially when you don't agree with their programs, reasonings, etc. Paul calls for them in chapter 7, verse 15. His affection abounds all the more to you as he remembers the obedience of you all. He's calling them to obey. In uh, chapter 2, and verse 9. For for to this end I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Uh, Next, do demonstrate a readiness to follow your leader's ministry emphasis and direction. In in calling for the offering, Paul is setting a direction for the ministry, chapter 9, and he calls them to be ready to follow that. Don't drag your feet. Jump in. Leaders are supposed to lead you. Demonstrate that you understand that principle. Next, do find it important to boast about and defend your leaders. I, I, I greatly appreciate, highly respect your pastor. I've not heard anything bad from any of you. All right? So this is not like you, you don't do the same. But I, I should hear good things from you if we were to spend much time. Assuming what I believe God's called him and he's being faithful to the word. here. He's not perfect. I know that. I had to correct him. No, I'm just kidding. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. They are supposed to defend Paul, to boast about him. Next, do show proper affection for your leaders. You know that familiar section? where it's uh, don't be bound together with unbelievers and partnership. We use that about marriage. We use that about business. It's about a relationship where the Corinthians were worldly and they were binding themselves to false teachers rather than to Paul. And in fact, the section ends as it runs into chapter 7 with this. Make room for us in your hearts. We didn't wrong you. We didn't do anything wrong. You ought to have an appropriate love and affection and show that to your pastor. Do you understand that you can contribute to your leader's depression by sustained spiritual rebellion? I mentioned there, Paul is so, by their rebellion, Paul is so distraught that he is, as he says, the God who comforts the depressed. You never think of Paul as a depressed person, huh? He was depressed over their spiritual status. And when you rebel... That's what happens to pastors. Second to last, do you believe that your God-chosen leader is proud of you? I have talked with your pastor, and he has said good things about you as a church. Not because I was like, give me some good news. My people are bad when he talks about you. No, it's been a joy to, to know that you're faithful and, and the work that the Lord is doing through you. Your leaders are proud of you. They're concerned about your reputation. And uh, and your eagerness to participate in the work of the ministry makes it easier for for leaders to brag about you. And finally, do give yourself to God so you give yourselves to your leaders. You you can't separate that in Paul's estimation. Verse 5 of chapter 8. Jump back to verse 3. For I testify according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave according to their own, begging with us, with much urging for the favor, participation in the support of the saints in this, not as we expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. almost sounds, yeah, give yourself to the Lord. For Paul, that and is important. You give yourself to God, then you're going to give yourself to Paul. Well, sorry for going over. Next week, you don't have to worry about that because I won't be back. But I hope there's, there's some food for thought and some encouragement to you tonight as, as we've uh, made a theological examination of the book of 2 Corinthians in regards to the pastor, God-chosen leader, and the, the church relationship. I'll turn it back over to you.